And this morning we're looking at James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. But I'll begin reading at verse 1 of James 4 and read through verse 10. So now to the reading of God's holy word. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we do rejoice and give thanks to you for your word. That is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this passage this morning, we ask, Father, that you would give us wisdom and guidance, that you would help us to see the truth that is here, and that you would truly bless your word as it goes forth. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. It is time to wake up. For too long, we have been resting in the ease and the comfort of of peace and prosperity. Indeed, compared to many places in the world, it's been relatively easy to be a Christian in the United States. We have great freedom and liberty to worship as we wish. There's little sacrifice as we seek to live out our faith. And there really isn't much and has not been much in the way of opposition and oppression. Well, such ease has a way of lulling us, that is the church, as we let down our guard, forgetting that we're sinners, surrounded by sinners, and that we live in a fallen and sinful world. Indeed, we forget that there are those who have taken lawlessness and disregard the Word of God and who continue to uh, promote their sinful lifestyles. And even it's gotten so bad that a materialism, wisdom, and the lifestyles of the world have taken root even in the church. As many have come to think that it's possible to be friends with the world and friends with God. But as we James reminded us in verse 4, such a dual friendship is impossible. Indeed, we forget that we're called each and every day to engage in battle against spiritual powers of darkness and sin in the world. 
But we also know that times are changing. That opposition is increasing and that freedoms are eroding. And so it's now time to wake up and to live the lives that Christ has called us to live. And so like a kind of a a blaring alarm clock that goes off in the midst of of your peaceful sleeping, James in this passage fires off ten imperatives that are ten commands, one right after the other, in order to awaken his readers and to awaken us from our spiritual slumber. For though it wasn't as easy for them as it's been for us, well, these to whom James is writing were also carried away with worldliness and selfish pursuits and the neglect of their reasonable service and their duty to the Lord the one who saved them and delivered them from eternal death. Indeed, they weren't living the way that they ought to live. They weren't sowing seeds of righteousness and peace. But instead, they were indulging in the idolatry of self. And James has already challenged them to pray and to seek the Lord's wisdom, to rely on the grace of God which He gives to overcome that idolatry of self. And now He fires away with these Ten Commands, in order to jolt them to pursue obedience, to pursue repentance, humiliation, and exaltation. And first, he charges them to obedience. The beginning of verse 7, he says, Therefore, submit to God. Now, right off the bat, we hear that word submit, and it doesn't sound very politically correct. And unfortunately, the word submit tends to, uh, these days, elicit a negative response from people. As, it, as we link it, it's often linked to abuse of position and, and authority. Whether that's within marriage, or within a civil relationships, or even within the church. The powerful, forcing the weak into submission so that they can control and abuse them, is certainly an evil that, is, that ought to be opposed But this isn't the kind of submission which James or even the Scripture itself asserts and challenges us with. Now the word submit here is in the passive voice as it often is uh, throughout the New Testament. And literally then the, the understanding is you submit yourselves. That is submission is something that's done willingly by the individual, and it's not something that is done by compulsion from someone else. It's done willingly out of respect for the authority of the one over you. Again, this is the sense of the command to submit that is found throughout the New Testament. And so we see that citizens, for example, are to submit, willingly submit to the civil rulers that God has placed over them. Members in the church are willingly to submit themselves to the authority that God has given to the elders. Servants are to submit themselves to the authority of their masters, or we might say their employers. Children are to submit to the authority God has given to their parents. Wives are to submit to the authority that God has given to the husbands in the home. And what's interesting, although it doesn't really involve the authority per se, but we do find one other charge to submit in uh, the New Testament, 
and that is believers are to submit to one another as a way to serve and minister to one another, putting the needs of others before their own. Now, when we again think of the word submit, it most clearly shows uh, this respect for authority when we obey. And so in a lot of ways, submission, not necessarily in all these uh, ways that we've, uh, these uh, areas that we have um, mentioned, but submission often implies obedience. And so we obey the laws of the land. Uh, children are called to obey their parents. Employees are to obey their bosses because they respect the authority of the one over them. And when there's no respect, there's typically no obedience, and therefore there's no submission. Now we know that submission and obedience isn't intended to be absolute, right? In other words, we submit to these authorities only as long as they, they don't try to compel us to disobey God. And in such cases where they tell us to disobey God, well then, we're clearly taught in the Scriptures that we ought to obey God rather than men. But in general, we are called to willingly submit ourselves to those in authority over us and to obey the rules and the laws that have been set before us. Now, if we are to submit to the authority that God has put in place in among men, well then certainly we must submit to the supreme and perfect authority of God whom we must obey of His laws and commands. And this is James' charge here. Now, of course, the problem is, very often, that our sinful nature doesn't want to submit to any authority at all. Right? We are, by nature, rebellious against the authority of God and the authority of man. We want to be our own boss, our own authority. And so again, it's the idolatry of self that comes into play as we want to uh, support ourselves as the one with supreme authority. Well, this is why we can only truly submit and obey by the power of the grace given to us through the Holy Spirit. You see, without Christ, we won't willingly submit and obey His commands or anyone else's commands for that matter. But you see, the call to submit here is more than just outward obedience to this rule or that. There's plenty of people who obey rules outwardly, but inwardly there's no respect and certainly no heart of submission. They conform outwardly, but inwardly they're still in rebellion. And this mere outward conformity isn't what James has in mind here. No, the word submit literally means to arrange under. And so we're to arrange ourselves under God's authority, under His supreme and gracious Lordship. Submitting ourselves to God involves not only outward obedience to His Word, and that is important, but also inwardly conforming our whole lives to His revealed will, so that we might live consistently in heart, mind, word, and deed with the glorious and perfect image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We submit not only our actions, 
but our heart, mind, and wills to God, striving in His grace to live according to the rule that He has given to us in His Word. Indeed, this is precisely what Jesus Himself did in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before His death. Remember, He he prayed three times to the Father that the coming cup of affliction would pass from Him. And yet three times He prayed to the Father, Not my will, but Your will be done. And this demonstrates for us very clearly that Jesus lived His whole life in full submission to the will of His heavenly Father. And because He's now secured for us salvation and the forgiveness of sins, and He has established, uh, he, he has now been established as Lord and as King over us, well, we owe Him obedience. We must respect His authority and we must submit to Him. We must willingly seek and serve His will rather than our own. And so the charge here is, submit therefore to God and to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. But a problem arises when we strive to faithfully do this. You see, as we seek to conform our lives and our will to God's revealed will, we know that we have an adversary that diligently seeks to interfere and and that seeks to lead us astray with various temptations to sin. Even as he did with Eve in the Garden of Eden. Satan will distort the truth of God's Word. And he will seek to entice us to rebel against him. And Satan is relentless in his attacks and he's going to be very personal. He's going to strike out at what we hold most near and dear to us. And he's going to drive wedges. He's going to take away. He's going to stir up envy and jealousy. He'll do anything to keep God's people from serving faithfully. Peter warns in 1 Peter 5.8, Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's a pretty graphic image. Satan seeks to devour us by keeping us from submitting to the Lordship of Christ in our lives. Well, this assault of resistance from the evil one must itself be met with resistance. As James then charges in the the second part of verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now here, resist is a a military term. It means to, to stand firm, to hold the line of battle, to not waver or cave in. And this is precisely what we must do against the assaults of the evil one. We must resist and stand firm. Now what makes this all the more challenging though, is that though we have these assaults from Satan coming from us from the outside, is that we also very often have a, Satan has a willing ally within us, a saboteur. One who that is aroused, that will seek to align himself with Satan and lead us into sin. This inner adversary is that remnant of the sin nature that continues to dwell in us. 
And so Satan will often use the sins, the desires, and the temptations that we most struggle with as a way to lead us away from God's will. I mean, it's greed, envy, lust, hatred, whatever it is. The devil doesn't want to make us do anything. Indeed, in our own sinful desires, we do what we want to do. Satan just lays before us the temptation. And so how do we resist Satan? How do we resist our own sinful desires? Well, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the gracious gift that the Lord has given that we might defend ourselves. Even the whole armor of God that has been given to equip equip us for battle. In Ephesians 6, we have this armor. It involves the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so we are equipped with this great armor, and yet we also have prayer. We have the abounding grace of God given to us when we seek after it. We have the fellowship and the encouragement and the ministry of the saints. We have the reading and the preaching of God's Word and the sacraments. All these are given to us to help us grow in faith so that we might stand against and resist the devil and his temptations. And James reassures here that if we resist Satan, he will flee from us. Right? This is certainly true and right. But again, even here, we must be careful that we don't lull ourselves into thinking that when we battle against Satan and his temptations, that it's just one and done. Right? That we go in, we enter the battle, we resist the devil, he flees from us, and then we rejoice and give thanks, and that is a good thing. And we should rejoice and give thanks. But we can't let up on our vigilance. Because we know from experience that Satan doesn't tire very easily. That he's persistent. And that he's relentless. And if we take a stand against him, we know that he will come back around at another opportune time, even as he did with Jesus. Now, sometimes that opportune time might be six months down the road. But it could very well also be just six minutes later. And this is why we must persevere and persist in our resistance against the evil one. Constantly being on the alert and ready to engage in battle. And again, this was Jesus' constant reminder to His disciples to be on the alert, to stay awake, to to watch out, to stand guard. Because the more we submit our lives fully and completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the more we can expect Satan to assault us. But also, as we look to the Lord to give us grace and strength to overcome these assaults, we also will be able to resist the devil even more so the next time. And that surely He will flee from us. As the Apostle John reassures in 1 John 4, 4, that He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. And so as we're awakened to obedience in Christ, we will gain victory over Satan's assaults in our lives. But we must never give up the battle. We must persist in it. 
And after each victory, we can certainly grow in grace. But the battle will continue. But we must also be woken up, not just to obedience, but we must be woken up to repent of the sins which we've committed during our time of spiritual slumber, and even those which we continue to commit when we fail to conform our lives to the will of God. And so James now urges in verse 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Usually when we find the charge or invitation to draw near to God in Scripture, it's in the context of drawing near and coming into His presence for worship. But in context here, James isn't speaking about worship, at least not as a distinct activity. That is, we should certainly draw near to God in prayer and worship. And as we do so, we will be strengthened and encouraged for the battles that we must face. But here, James seems to be using draw near in the sense of returning to God. In the midst of calling them brothers and beloved brothers throughout the letter, we know that James has already charged them with spiritual adultery. And he's soon going to call them sinners and double-minded. And again, these terms give the distinct impression that those to whom James is writing, the believers in Christ, they've turned away from God. And they've strayed from His love and care, not to ultimate destruction, mind you, because we know uh, no one truly redeemed by Christ will will, uh, ever be lost. You know, those to him, these to whom James is writing have for a time turned aside, even as we all have done at various times. They've sinned. They violated God's covenant and they put a wedge between them and the Lord with their sin. And so they must return to Him. They must return to a right relationship with their Lord and Savior. And this is only accomplished by the grace which Christ provides, as we saw back in verse 6. Only by God's grace can they return. And again, we're not speaking of those who are lost in sin and and unregenerate in heart. James isn't referring to an initial call to repent and believe the gospel. Again, these are believers already. But it's charged for them to draw near to God to return where they once were before when they did first believe. And so it has a very similar effect. They've strayed away. And now they need to come back. They need to repent of their sin. They need to turn away from it and turn once again to God, drawing near to Him. It's this kind of repentance and returning to the Lord that Jesus described in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember in that parable it was the younger son who was born into the household of his father and he was given great privilege and honor. And yet he rebelled and he disrespected his father's authority and he demanded his inheritance even before his father uh, had died. As if to say he was wishing his father were dead. He wanted that inheritance. And he takes that inheritance and he went and he lived a life of selfish worldly pursuits that surely would have been displeasing to his father. But then when the man comes to himself, in the muck and the mire of of a pigsty, and he realizes his sin, 
And he's moved to great sorrow and he's moved that he must return to his father. And so in shame and humiliation, he returns. But remember what happens as he's returning. When he's still far off, his father looks up and he sees him coming. And his father is moved with compassion as he sees his, his son drawing near to him. His son who, who must be repentant. And the father graciously runs to the son and embraces him and restores him to the fellowship of the family. That's a beautiful picture of God's reception of us, the rebellious sinners and sons that we were. And He restores us in Christ. Indeed, beloved of God, this is the blessing that James is speaking of here. Because we too have sinned against God. We like sheep have gone astray. We've fallen asleep when we are known, have known that there was kingdom work to be done. We need to wake up from our slumber and wandering in sin and return to the Lord who abounding in grace and mercy is ready and willing to receive us and to welcome us home and to restore us into His family. And so indeed, we must truly draw near to the Lord and return to Him. A part of this returning, though, is being awakened, even as the prodigal son was in the pigsty, awakened to our sin. To our sin against God and and seeing our need for being washed and cleansed in His sight. And so James now charges in the second part of verse 8, he says, uh, with two other commands, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, note that he calls them sinners and double-minded. Another strong contrast to his usual beloved brothers. Again, though they're believers, they've missed the mark. They've been double-minded. And remember what James said earlier about the double-minded in in chapter 1, verse 8. He says that the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And he's the one who speaks blessing to God one moment and then curses his brother the next. He forsakes the heavenly wisdom and exchanges it for the earthly wisdom. He is the one who tries to be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time, which is impossible because they're opposed to one another. This one then needs to clean up his act, so to speak. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. And especially James highlights hands and hearts are mentioned here to to specify not only outward deeds, but also the attitude of one's heart. It's not just what we do, but it's what we think and what we say. Both are dirty. Both are marred by sin. As we noted before, the tongue and one's actions reveal what's in the heart. And if there's garbage in their hearts, well, then their words and deeds are going to be garbage. And if their words and deeds are garbage, well, it likely means that there's sinful garbage in their hearts that needs to be cleansed and purified. And so as they wake up from this spiritual slumber and see their sin and thought, word and deed, 
They need to be cleansed and purified so that they can enter the presence of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart. But the cleansing that's needed isn't anything that we've done or could do. Again, it's only possible through Jesus Christ. As we return to God and draw near to Him, we must deal with our sin and seek God's mercy and grace for forgiveness. Looking to Him to transform our hearts, minds, tongues, and deeds so that we might be cleansed. And as John declares in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Cleansing and purification is only found by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so we must be cleansed. But as we return to the Lord in repentance, we must also acknowledge how greatly we've offended Him and how much we have grieved the Holy Spirit of God. And then we have the final commands in verse 9, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now some misunderstand James' charge here and think that we must walk around in perpetual gloom and mourning because of our sin. Well, not only would this contradict the Apostle Paul's charge to rejoice always again, I say rejoice, but it also would contradict James' own words earlier in chapter 1, verse 2, when he said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And so clearly James isn't telling them to walk around like somber sticks in the mud. The laughter and joy that James is referring to is the laughter and joy of those who uh, revel in their sinful pleasures. And this is a temporal joy that quickly uh, fades away, but but not before it consumes and destroys. It consumes and destroys our lives, our relationship with God, and our relationship with one another. And it's this worldly laughter and joy that marks the philosophy that's so common even today, To eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. It's the laughter of living for the moment and disregarding the law of God, disregarding any any thought of impending judgment. It's such revelry that James wants us to turn away from. We should turn away from it. We should mourn for our sin. We should mourn for the fact that we've violated God's holiness and that we have trampled upon the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very blood that has secured our salvation. We should mourn and weep as we acknowledge how our own sin not only affected us, right, as we have to deal with the various consequences of our sin in our lives, And not only how it affected and disrupted our relationships with the Lord, but also how our sin may have affected our relationship with others. How by our sin we've caused hurt and pain to others by our attitudes, by our words, and by our actions. And so we should mourn, we should weep, we should wail at how our sin may have affected our witness even to others perhaps even leading them astray and causing them to stumble. 
as we repent of our sin and return to God, may we weep over our sin and the destruction that it has caused as we seek God's grace and mercy for forgiveness. Finally, James calls his readers and he calls us to wake up to humiliation and exaltation. We need to acknowledge our spiritual poverty and humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. We need to wake up to humble yourselves before the Lord. And this isn't just the submission and obedience that we mentioned earlier, although it certainly includes that. But to humble ourselves before the Lord means that we've come to understand the truth that we can't do anything to save or deliver ourselves. We can't do anything without the grace which Jesus Christ alone provides by His Spirit. We mustn't only humble ourselves before the Lord, but also before others as we acknowledge our sin and our weakness. As we set aside all sinful pride and idolatry of self. As we put the sinful ways of the old man of sin to death. And to put on the new way of living in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we think of those who humble themselves before the Lord, we're reminded of the tax collector who went to the temple uh, to pray, not even able to lift up his eyes toward heaven. He hung his head in humility and beat his breast, crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Beloved of God, it's such a broken and contrite heart that the Lord desires to come to Him. And the promise and the assurance that James now gives that if we would humble ourselves before the Lord in this way, in verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. He'll lift. He will exalt you. Don't exalt yourself. Don't puff yourself up with pride. Don't follow the worldly wisdom of self-indulgence and idolatry. But humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up and He will exalt you. But to what shall you be exalted? Well, you'll be exalted, first of all, in this life. You'll be exalted as you're marked and set apart as a beloved child of the living God, Creator of heaven and earth. And though the world scoffs and hurls abuse and rejects you and and misuses you because of your faith in Christ, you will be lifted up in the eyes of God, the Creator. Because you'll be receiving the same treatment that they gave the world, gave His own beloved Son. And you'll be walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ Himself. And just as God exalted Him, He will exalt you. So if we humble ourselves before the Lord now, He will also lift us up and exalt us before all creation on the last great day when He raises up those in Christ and seats them besides the Lord Jesus on His throne as we reign and as we rule with Him. Paul reminds Timothy of this great truth in 2 Timothy 2. If we endure, we also will reign with Him. Beloved of God, 
if you would wake up now, wake up out of your spiritual slumber and and obey and repent and humble yourself before the Lord in faith, He will exalt you to a glorious eternal inheritance. And this exaltation is made possible for us because the eternal Son of God humbled Himself and came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That He was humiliated as He was exposed to the pain and the suffering of this world. That He was tempted in all ways that we are tempted and yet without sin. And He was especially humiliated when He endured the painful and shameful death of the cross for us, for our sins, in our place. But then God highly exalted Him and not only brought Him to life again on the third day, but then highly exalted Him and established His eternal throne in the heavenly places where He even now reigns and rules over all things as King of kings and Lord of lords. So that those who now turn away from their sin and who trust in Christ alone for their salvation, they shall be exalted and they shall surely reign with Him. Friends, until that time of greater exaltation, as we live in this life, as we continue and engage in that daily battle against the evil one and resisting his temptations, we must wake up. We must wake up and exalt him and exalt his Christ and exalt his gospel in our own lives, living the way that he's called us to live so that He alone would be glorified in us and through us. Let's pray. A gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to You, Father, for this reminder that we would truly wake up as we hear these commands being issued forth, one right after the other, that we must truly... Be submissive to Your will. Humble ourselves before You. Turn away from our sin. Resist the evil one. Knowing that You will exalt us. You will exalt us before our enemies in this life. But especially You will exalt us on that last great day before all creation. Because as You have called us to live these lives in humility and suffering, following the footsteps of our Savior, all to the praise of Your glorious name. Father, we pray that Your Spirit would truly impress these truths upon our hearts, drawing us all closer to Yourself. And that even through, as we strive to live our lives in conformity with Your will, that You would help us to be beacons of light and hope to this community, that our church would be such a beacon and light, that many would see the witness, that they would see our love for one another and our love for You, and that they would ask for the reason of the hope that is in us, that You would give us the words to speak, that they too might join with us in this chorus of praise and thanksgiving, that You alone are God. You alone are the Lord and King. You alone are our Savior and Redeemer. 
Father, we pray that you would impress these things upon our hearts. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.